Deer found her. As you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Deer Found Her podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Found Her. Today, I'm talking to three co-founders who will speak to the power and importance of research, product, and concept testing before launching a business at scale. In a few minutes, I'll be bringing on the ever-impressive Melissa Mash, Deepa Gandhi, and Jesse Dover, co-founders of Dagny Dover. But first, I'm your host, Lindsay Pinchuk. I'm an award-winning entrepreneur who's been building brands for nearly 25 years. For as long as I can remember, I have had some kind of job in marketing. In 2010, with a $500 investment, I founded, built, and sold a seven-figure business, a community for parents and parents-to-be that reached 3 million people per month. And in 2021, two years after I sold my company, I made the decision to exit in order to show up and serve a new community, female founders. This podcast is my twice weekly letter to you to inspire you to find success through your own entrepreneurial endeavors. This podcast is the show I wanted 13 years ago when I became a female founder. So if there's anything you want to hear about or anything you want me to share to help you through your own experience, please, I invite you to reach out. And if you're inspired by today's episode, I invite you to share it, text it to a friend or share it in your stories. If you tag me at Lindsay Pinchuk and at Dear Founder, I will absolutely come and say hi and I'll probably reshare it too. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you left a five-star rating or a review as that's how other entrepreneurs and female founders discover our show and the incredible stories that we share here. Today's guests, Melissa Mash, Deepa Gandhi, and Jesse Dover, have been working together for almost 12 years with almost 10 years of business with Dagny Dover. You will hear them talk about how they started their company during a completely different time when it came to marketing and social media and how they scaled their business to become one of the top selling handbag companies sold at Nordstrom stores. This story is an incredible case study because, honest to God, it these three women talk about exactly what you need to do when you are starting a company from scratch, from the ground up, and they dive deep, they will hold your hand, and they will also tell you about not only the ups and the successes, but some of their biggest hurdles that they've had to overcome. So please come on in and meet these three amazing women. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. I am so excited about today's episode because I have not one, not two, but three co-founders sitting here with me of an amazing brand that you've probably seen in Nordstrom. And if you haven't seen on Nordstrom, you've seen it online for sure. And if you haven't seen it, you're going to want to see it. And we're going to get to the core of how they started it today. So please welcome to Dear Founder, Melissa Mash, Deepa Gandhi, and Jesse Dover, who are the co-founders of Dagny Dover. Welcome. Thanks for Hi, having us. Thank you. Hey. Of 
Of course. I mean, we've been talking for 30 minutes. We could probably talk all day, (laughs) but I am really excited to hear the story of how you guys founded your business. And I know bits and pieces, but I don't know it from your mouths and I'm really excited to hear it. So who wants to start? Sure. I can kick it off. Um, So, you know, Deepa, Jesse and I, we all came from the retail industry. We came from different parts of it. And um, we always saw that there was a different need in the market that wasn't being met at the time. Uh, Back in 2009, I was working for another brand in London and I was in charge of turning around its first European store. So I was working in a store, talking to customers every day and people would come in and they couldn't find what they were looking for. They wanted something that could you know, sustain the elements of the weather and make sure that it flex between the gym and the office and travel and, um, and you know, the in going out for the evening. And uh, they couldn't find a bag that could really suit the purposes of all that, whether it was carrying their laptop, carrying an iPad, their phones, uh, water bottle, you know, maybe they're traveling, they need their passport and boarding pass. And so they wanted something that, first of all, wasn't covered in logos. Second of all, was a compelling price point. You know, they didn't want to have to spend a thousand dollars to get a high quality bag. And then of course the material performance too. Um, and of course the functionality. So Deepa, Jesse, and I came together in 2011, started working on it, and launched the brand in 2013. So we've almost been in market for 10 years now, which is which is awesome. Um, Deepa and I are both MBAs uh, who also you know worked in the retail industry, and Jesse showed up on my radar when. Um, when she had won the coach accessories design competition at Coach when she was a student at Parsons. So that's how we connected. So when you guys launched, you launched in 2013, but you were working together for two years prior. So talk to me a little bit about those two years and what that process was. Um, We're going to get into the funding in a minute, so you can kind of maybe keep that piece out. But what was that process of you came together, you had this idea, and now what are we going to do with that idea before we launch? So it was really important to us, given that Deepa and I were at Wharton um, and Jesse was still working in New York full time at, at her job. Um, we were really set on making sure that this was a data backed brand and a data backed launch. And we needed to make sure that we had product market fit from day one. We had a small amount of friends and family money and some grants that we had won to be able to set up the business and run a first production run out of New York. But we wanted to make sure that every tiny detail of the products was going to hit. Whether it be literally the drop length of a handle so that you could get it over your elbow while you're wearing a heavy winter coat and that, you know, the bag would be comfortable and padded and all of that to, um, of course, making sure that the functionality was accommodating the right tech sizes that people needed to to carry their tech. So we had surveyed and focus grouped over a thousand women and men to figure out what their biggest handbag problems were, um, in addition to pricing studies, in addition to um, studies in terms of like our name and, you know, our logo and what was what was resonating with um, consumers. I love that you bring up the data aspect because I do think there are so many founders out there who have an idea and they kind of just go for it. And, you know, I think, you know, we live in this founder culture where a lot of times people say, just do it, just go for it. And, and I do believe there is this element to that, right? But when you are creating a product that involves capital and you have to put actual money into making the product, yeah. The research is key to the whole thing. The research. I mean, so like, what were the things that you were asking? And I, I'm sharing this and really breaking it down because I want the people who are listening, who have product-based ideas, 
or even who have products out there in the market to understand the importance of research and how you guys used this research to catapult your company. Yeah. So I'll jump in on that one if you guys are cool with that. We did uh, a ton of surveys and focus groups and also just use like real life experience and observing people experiencing their products. Like the benefit that we had was like, you can see everybody using their bag every day on the train, on the plane, everywhere you are. So you can kind of like see what's going on. But really we were asking people what they liked about their current products. Um, And then also, of course, like what their biggest pain points were. Um, And then we basically started with like, you know, we'll narrow that down to like top three, five, and then design into um, whatever we think will be the most interesting silhouette that we would want to wear and make sure that we include those things. Sometimes things come together and it's like, you know, holy cow, I would never just designing from a creative standpoint, I would have never thought of that. Um, I would have never even tried it, but it turned out actually to be really, really cool. I think an example of that would be, um, like, what would I say? I don't know if like Achilles are a good example. Um, I would never have said like, I want to put my, um, my phone on like a a stretchy leash because elastic is like annoying. It gets caught on things. We were like, let's try it. Let's see. Um, it ended up working out really well. And now the key leash is on every single one of our products. Um, so everyone can find their keys whenever they're looking for it. So I think just to kind of circle back, like ask all the questions that you might need to know, and then you can kind of like um, use your testing and where, where testing phases to figure out if those things are going to work for the consumer or not. And then the last thing I think is really, really important is that you get attached to everything that you make because you've worked so hard on it. We've tested so much and sometimes people won't like it because it's not a good solution and you have to be willing to like drop it, let it go, um, and just navigate towards the things that are working and solving people's problems. I think as an entrepreneur, that's like the hardest thing to do. I love that piece of advice because you have to know when to pivot. You have to. I mean, there's, you know, and there are, there are so, I think back to the days at Bump Club and there were so many times that we would like launch a program and I would think it's a great idea or my team would think it's a great idea and it would flop. And, you know, people were like, I don't want that speaker. Like, I don't need, I don't need that information. And, but you have to, to your point, let it go. You just have to. So let's fast forward to 2013. You guys are getting ready to launch your brand. What is the plan? Like how many products do you have? Where are you launching it? How are you getting the word out? What's going on? So it was 2013 and um, we were in a different time than today when you launch brands. Like frankly, like I'm, I feel, I feel for people launching brands today because Wait, I want to just paint a picture for people right now, because I don't know if you're going to say this, but I, and I want you to make sure you do, but I want to paint a picture in that social media wasn't what it is right now in that's, 2013. That's exactly because, what Okay. Go like, please, by all means, like, because it wasn't the same when I launched my company either. Yeah. And it's very different. So like, I want people to think about what 2013 was. Think about where you were in 2013. Yeah. Not where so Lindsay, like, spot on that like social media was going to be a large part of what okay. I talk about. And, <laughs> and so I, I feel, I feel like I feel for entrepreneurs today, like take calls with new entrepreneurs all the time. They're like, well, how did you launch it? What was successful for you with Dagny? And I was like, that was almost 10 years ago. And the world was so different. We had a couple things that really were 
um, advantageous to us. And then we also had other challenges, right? Um, and so let's focus on what was advantageous to us and different than the current environment that we're in. So it was 2023. And this is when there were brands launching, but there still were less brands launching. Instagram was like pretty new. Instagram advertising, for example, had not even launched yet. And, um, and so what we were able to do, this was the time when you could post on Facebook and say, Hey, I'm launching a brand or even earlier for us. Hey, we're thinking about launching a brand. Can you fill out this survey? And people were so excited. They wanted to rally behind you, your network, your community, your world were like, what is this? This is so exciting. I want to be there to support you. And that's how we got over a thousand people to like do focus groups and surveys with us. And people were sharing, right? Like that's the share button was used much more frequently for a very different purpose, right? Social media was actually a more intimate experience then, right? Like really you, social. It was social, right? Like you were you on Facebook. You didn't have to force you, the social nature of social media in 2013. Right, it just exactly. was part of how you what it was. And it was huge. So we started by sharing what we were working on through survey requests and things like that on social media, specifically Facebook, because let's also think about that. This is when you your first medium of social media was Facebook. It wasn't Instagram or TikTok or any of the other channels. And then um, in early 2013, we had um, two viable products right? That came out of all of that focus grouping and research that Mel and Jesse just spoke about. And it was our, what is now known as our signature legend tote, but then we called it something else and, um, and uh, the essentials clutch wallet. And so the way we thought about it was we started with where there was just the biggest need, the biggest hole in the market, right? Like women were going to work and felt that the products out there did not address their needs. So we said, let's make the perfect tote for you, which had a place for your laptop, folders, notebooks, a place for your water bottle. So it wouldn't tip over and ruin everything in your bag, a keychain, a place for pens, lip gloss, everything, right. And keep it and structured so you could take it. And we made it out of coated canvas because it's a very durable kind of, um, all, um, weather resistant type of material, and then we also had the Essentials Clutch Wallet, which was the perfect clutch and wallet that you could take with you at a removable card case. You could just drop that in any bag. Or if you're running out to grab coffee during the day, that's all you need. But then if you also wanted to take it out with you at night, you could take the whole clutch wallet out with you and have exactly what you wanted. And that really came through a lot of testing. And we were manufacturing locally. And so before we even put it, our first production order in, we said we wanted to make sure that there was pro- not just product market fit, but the next thing that is super important is, are people willing to pay full price for this product, right? Like that's a big question. You might have the best product, but once you go through your pricing decision-making process, you want to make sure that people are actually going to show up and purchase, right? And so we launched with literally some really not so great samples and some pictures that we took ourselves, a pre-sale. And where did we go first when that pre-sale launched? We went to our friends and we went right back to Facebook and we said, hey, we're launching a pre-sale, that product that we've been asking you to like do surveys for, it's here. And people were ecstatic and you, you saw the virality happen. And we did like 40K in revenue in no time. Like it was just like- Oh my God, boom. that is amazing. It was amazing. But that, and that's where like, I feel for people that launch today because there's so much more noise on social. You have to start with paid ads, right? Like you can't just say, hey, I'm launching this and expect that every person 
that finds that interesting is going to share it. We on the flip side, that's what happened. Every person I knew that we went to business school with or used to work with or anything, they were like, this is awesome. You should buy this. You know, I've known I've known Deepa since college and this is, I'm so excited she's launching this brand, Dagny Dover, check it out. And you'd have people tagging friends saying like the people they knew that needed this product and it converted. And over a six month period, we went from one in every like, nine purchases being from somebody we didn't know to then like what only like like eight and every nine purchases being from people that we didn't know and so that word of mouth just pushed for us and social was such an integral part of that and what was great was we had 40k of revenue with a pre-sale that allowed us to then go and place those orders with a new york-based manufacturer and very quickly we had to start dual processing and we were raising capital So in early 2014, we raised our first seed round through angel investors and high net worth individuals and friends and family. And then also Jesse and I started to go to Asia to explore Asian manufacturing opportunities because we're like, okay, this seems like there's momentum there. But I think something that's really important about what we did is we tested before we pushed forward, right? So Yes, the product could have been better quality when we first launched it if we had done it out of Asia, but the minimums would have been so much higher that if something wasn't right or something didn't work, we would have been in a bigger hole and have taken on a lot more risk. While manufacturing locally, we were able to do really small batch production. Like I'm saying, like I'm talking about 24 pieces at a time type of production and then go to an Asian facility in 2014 that allowed us to start scaling and build. And so it was a really amazing like year and a half for us, but we really tried to temper our growth and be really thoughtful about the calculated risks that we were taking. It's also why we launched with two products, right? And we said, let's get the feedback. Let's see how people respond. Does the material actually work the way we want? We're using these really big, chunky zippers that not everybody uses. Is that what people like? They love it. And we still have it on all of our products. And, um, you know, there were so many things that we wanted to make sure were right before we even raised a ton of capital and also before we scaled. Um, which is a little different than I think a lot of other direct-to-consumer brands that launched over the past 10 years. Um, We didn't, we've never had it to this day. We still don't have the like grow at all costs and get as big as possible, as quickly as possible for us. It was like, let's build the foundation. Let's start to build the brand. Let's build a loyal customer base. And then if we do that right, we will, we, the hope was we would grow. And 10 years later, it worked, which is great. Hi guys, it's me, Lindsay. I wanted to tell you about HoneyBook, the new tool I've been using to automate my business. This past December, I felt that things were a little bit disjointed. My coaching and consulting contracts and client acquisition process wasn't automated. And honestly, I just kind of felt like a mess. And then someone introduced me to HoneyBook. They're the leading client flow platform for independent businesses. And it's what I use to make my client acquisition and payment processes as easy as possible, not just for me, but for you. HoneyBook allows me to manage my workflow and my client experience, streamlining all the steps that it takes to sell and deliver my personalized services. By combining tools like billing and contracts and client communication, HoneyBook helps independents get organized and provide top-tier service at every step, and I have loved it so far. The best client experiences truly are built on HoneyBook, and I am totally sold. You can check out the link in my show notes and give it a try for a dollar a month through February 27th. 
But here's the interesting thing that you said about this, that I think even someone launching in today's environment can take away from everything that you just said. There's a lot that people can take away from what you just said, but the basic principle of leveraging word of mouth marketing, building that community and building the foundation. You talked about all three of those things. And those are basic principles that I think a lot of founders today lose because they're in such a rush to just get their product out there and get it sold. And, and they rush to put up ads. Well, guess what? If you rush and put up ads and there's nothing for people to see when they click through, no history, nothing on the back end, nothing on your website, it's going to fall flat. You really like the, the basic principles of building a foundation are what has made you successful in the long term. Yeah. You know, the social has been the tactic that has pushed you out into the world, but it's those basic principles of growth that you guys really have instilled in your brand. And any brand should be doing that. And any brand should know it's not going to happen overnight when you put up social ads. I think that's really well said. And also just to like something I didn't actually, I wouldn't have said I knew, but that we did because we had to and worked is like speaking, not to the masses, like not even putting up ads to talk to people we didn't know, but like use our personal connections and our, our personal networks as like our, our community. Then it grew from there. Like once we felt really solid with those relationships and like we could offer them a product and experience that we could feel proud of and like see them the next day after they had used it for a while. And like, you know, not, not be like, okay, like I know a million things went wrong, but like, you know, so I guess that like immediate network, I think is really important and maybe something that people miss today because it is so easy also to just throw up an ad or to like gain tons of followers that don't know who you are. They're not going to look at your site if you're like working on it and you're trying to build something and think, oh, that she's working on it. She's trying to build it. I'm really proud of her. They're going to think this is like not (laughs) good. Yeah. I I Um, also think that some people become founders. and and they have like a little bit of an ego about things and they want things, you know, they want to come off a certain very polished way. Um, so maybe they have like a little bit of pride in terms of like being willing to literally ask everyone, you know, to fill out this survey and like, you know, are they interested in buying this product? You know, like it takes a certain shamelessness to, to be willing to do that, but it's so critical if you, again, yeah, don't want to overpay for customers or try to form a relationship with someone who actually has no interest in your product, you know, like, you you want to go to people who have some skin in the game and have some reason to pay attention and listen to, to what you're putting out there. So you had, of course, you just described your initial success and, and you were raising money through friends and family. And you, you know, you just described that. Um, but what was kind of the next big hurdle that you guys got over? Because you are not just direct to consumer and you have a big partnership with Nordstrom. Is that, was that kind of the next big thing that happened or did something happen in between? (laughs) There was so much in between. I mean, Um, I'm sure there was so much in between, but I'm just pointing out the big hurdles. The big hurdles. I would say, so I think first is actually, we learned a lot about product development. So like, I think one thing that's important that actually just helps support the word of mouth piece then and to this day is we're like a very much a product first company. We're like, we need to make great product. And if we make great product, then the marketing will support that, right? Versus being a marketing first company. And 
um, from our perspective, that allows it to be a more sustainable, scalable business in the long run. And so we, I'd say the first hurdle was all, most of it was production product related. And so, yeah, Jesse and I were going to Asia, trying to, you know, get things made with the factory, get that up and running. But then also we were working on new products and we had, we had a total hiccup. Like we did rush, like we raised our initial round and we felt like we had to then show progress. And so we rushed production of a, of like a smaller version of our classic, of our like signature tote and handle started to break. Like literally remember this, like in Asia, Jesse and I were like heading to like leaving an airport and we started getting messages from people in the U.S. who were like, okay, so people's handles are breaking. We're like, oh my God, what happened? And we had to deal with it right away. And I think I'm, I'm thankful we had that lesson so early on because it has made us so disciplined and diligent with any other product launch. And um, it's advice I think all three of us give other people. You need those lessons. Exactly. Grow. And, yeah. and we said, you know what, if we wait an extra three months at that time, I think this is one thing about being an early founder and a, or like a younger entrepreneur is you just, you feel like you have to be always pushing and running and, and moving really quickly. Cause that's how it feels that the world is around you. And a lot of times in the press, you hear the like the like really polished, perfect stories and versions, which is why I actually think all of us like to talk about our mini tote fiasco, because it shows that like not everything is perfect. Not everything is just like straight up and to the right. And for us, I'm like, I'm like, always thankful for that lesson because I think it really grounded us and had us say, we have to always take our time. And that is like very much in our DNA as a brand and as a business is we don't rush anything. So even going live with Nordstrom then, or other retail partners or other things. Like we get tons of opportunities all the time, even today. And we always say, is this the right time? Is this the right thing to do? Is it going to cause us to be too fast and take that risk? And how does it affect the rest of the business, right? There's so many things to consider, but um, I would say product was one of the biggest hurdles earlier on. Um, And then I think this dovetails nicely into being really smart about who your initial hires are. So one of our first hires was a, an experienced um, sourcing and production like expert. And it was an area that the three of us didn't have experience in, right? Like I had worked on more of the operational side of supply chain work, Jesse had the design side and the technical design side and knowledge, but really understanding how do you get a bag made and who are the right vendors and who are the right factory partners and all of that, that was where we were figuring it out. And we were really scrappy and nimble about it, but we hit a point where we said, we need somebody who's done this before. And we were very fortunate. We found this amazing person who had worked at, like name a big brand. She's been there. She had all of the, she had the network and she wanted to come and work at a young brand that was new and different and interesting and took, took a risk on us. And I think that was also a really good lesson for us in hiring where it's like knowing where you can hire somebody young and scrappy who's willing to like do anything, which is very important when you are, um, when you are a new business, which is like our other, one of our other first employees. And then in certain areas like sourcing and production, you need somebody who has the expertise. And so that was a way we got over that hurdle. And then, yeah, distribution and just growth overall, right? Like, how do you think about it? Now you're bringing all this money. 
when do you really start spending on marketing? When do you start pushing those ads out there? And we were fortunate also where we literally were at the beginning of Instagram advertising, like when mm-hmm. literally it launched and we were like, oh, let's opt into that, which allowed us to see some amazing results. And, um, but we still always had this thesis of everything supports the brand and the product, right? So we never then went to a place where it's like, okay, 70 plus percent of our acquisition is going to come from paid ad- paid advertising. To this day, 40% of our acquisition is still word of mouth, right? And then it kind of trickles through all of that. So it was an interesting process, but in terms of hurdles, I think the first, yeah, would be product. And then second would be marketing and growth. Like how do you approach it in a way that is manageable and sustainable and allows you to not compromise who your brand is or what your product is to also achieve like the growth potential, you know, the business has. So when were you guys ready for Nordstrom and how did that happen? You guys, and I want to point out, you guys are like the fastest growing bag brand at Nordstrom, correct? That was what was in my Uh, brief. We're a top three fastest growing bag brand at Nordstrom. Um, We started our relationship. Congratulations. I mean, that's huge, huge. So, I mean, how did that happen? Um, So I used to work on the wholesale side at a major bag brand. Mm-hmm. And so um, through, you know, some contacts, we were put in touch with Nordstrom. Uh, initially, you know, they were attracted to our 365 collection, our neoprene collection. And then once they saw that, they said, let's bring in, you know, the whole collection on .com, um, which is definitely what we preferred because we wanted to learn about their customer before we invested the time and the inventory to support that business, having any idea what magnitude it could be. So it was really an important learning time and learning tool for us to learn about a different customer, right? Their customer is slightly nuanced from, from our own. So that was 2018. And then we've grown a very healthy business with them. They're our biggest wholesale partner. We're in all 100 locations in the US and Canada with them. Um, so it's been a fantastic partnership. We we couldn't be happier with it. But your D2C business has not gone down. I mean, it's gone up. I mean, you, ha- you guys are mostly D2C. I want to point that out, correct? Correct. Which is, I mean, it's only probably enhanced your D2C business. And and that was the idea. That was the idea for us, which is that, you know, um, for wholesale partners, we we don't just look at it as a sales channel. In fact, it really is a customer acquisition channel. It's a way for us to get our products and our quality and the marketing vehicle. Exactly. In front of people across the entire U.S. who we otherwise wouldn't be able to have access to. So, um, you know, digital is fantastic. Digital marketing um, has up until now been you know, a very effective tool. That being said, it's not the only way in which you can get in front of your customer. You need to hit them. You know, we, we do all different forms of advertising, whether it's OTT. So if they're watching Hulu or any other type of um, show like that, or if they're, of course, on a, if we're on a billboard during their commute, um, if we're on a podcast, you know, there are so many ways in which they can get familiar with our products and what makes them different. But of course, touching and feeling them in real life through a retailer is is also a huge opportunity. When did you guys make the decision to open your flagship store, which I'm looking at right now? And when this video goes on YouTube, people will be able to see what it it looks like because it's it's your backgrounds, but um, it's beautiful. And I know that that kind of takes on a whole new level as well. But when did you decide and why in that moment was that the right move for you guys? Yeah, we we always wanted to open at least one store. I think initially we were kind of like, you know, we'll get to it once it makes sense. Um, And once like we can run the store because having stores, as you know, is like a whole nother business. It's a whole like 
whole extra thing. Um, and we felt like, you know, something like Nordstrom's, as you had mentioned, would be great for us to start with just because like, you know, it's really easy. It's like, we really believe in the product, but like it's hard, it's, you know, stores a lot of things. So anyways, we, we decided to open the store um, and ended up opening it in 2020. And um, as you know, that was like mid COVID or the beginning of COVID. Um, <laughs> so that was really fun. It's in Soho on Lafayette. Um, but we worked through it. Now the store is like, it's on 273 Lafayette. If anyone wants to come, come visit, we have all of our products in store. So everyone can come touch and feel. Um, but it was always part of our vision to build a place where we could have the brand come to life. Of course, people can touch and feel the product in Nordstrom's and other stores, but like Really, we wanted to build an environment that people could experience so they could understand kind of what we stand for. Um, and we could talk them through things like in our own voice. Um, so as you can see behind Mel, there's like this packing station. So if you come in, we have this like cool <laughs> unit that's like filled with things like computers, state computers, um, like breast pumps, like water bottles, all kinds of stuff that you might carry in your bag. Um, so you can come in, pick a bag, pack it up with all the things that like you might have, um, see if it fits all your stuff. If it's too heavy, check it out in the mirror. Um, the products are interactive. So like we really wanted to make sure people understood like how functional they really are and how awesome they are. Like everything we do at Dagby, I'm sure there's a theme that you and your listeners are going to get is we test before we push forward with something. So we actually opened a pop-up very close to where we were um, um, a couple of years ago. And we used that. It was like, you know, much more, you know, friendly, like rental agreement. We actually like, it was supposed to start as a three-month pop-up, but it did really well. And so then we just kept it going. And then we, while we kept that going and just kind of like month to month extended and had this amazing space where we had a different version of the packing station, but we realized that like majority of the customers were spending their time in this beautiful pop-up in the packing station. So we're like, okay, well, when we build out our permanent store, like the entire experience should be built around that. Right. And so it was really great. We also allowed it, it allowed us from a financial perspective to figure out what the unit economics on a store would look like. So we were able to budget and say, well, this is the rent that we can afford, assuming this type of performance in this a similar neighborhood. And so we simultaneously still kept the pop-up open, found a permanent location. And then so that when we opened the permanent location, COVID aside, we had a lot of confidence around how it was going to perform. Obviously, it took longer for us to get to, you know, break even and then profitability in the store because of what happened, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective. But it was like we were able to go into it so much more confidently because and sign that lease so much more confidently because we had a really strong proof point from our prop, from our pop-up, which ended up running for like 18 months. Hi guys, it's me, Lindsay. I'm not sure if you're aware, but over the last nine months, I haven't just helped big enterprise brands on their marketing efforts through my consulting firm. I've also helped over a dozen women, small business owners in launching their companies, building their brands, and to tweak what wasn't working. I've been building and growing brands for nearly 25 years, but I've forever used one method to build my own brands and that of my clients and students. My signature suite method utilizes social media, your website, emails, events, partnerships, and publicity to generate and execute cost-effective community-centric marketing strategies. If you're looking for that added layer of guidance, please reach out. There's a link in my show notes. Book a call with me and let's see how I can help you.
I can't wait to meet you and learn about your business. Now back to the show. You guys have a really big sustainability message, and I want to make sure that our listeners hear that. And that that is something that is very clear when you go to your website. It's very clearly important to you. And so I would like for you to share a little bit about that and then also how you instill that within your values at your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sustainability is incredibly important to us as we learned more and more about our industry and how to like and how how damaging it can be to the earth we decided like that we were going to only, only create better so we decided to implement a <clears throat> like basically a rule that in the future we only create things um that are more sustainable and better than what we've created before basically best in class the most sustainable products that we can um so we recently, I guess it was last year, actually, we launched our eco-friendlier collection, which is made of completely recycled materials. Um, the, the material that we use is called Reprieve, and it's basically just, it's made out of recycled plastic bottles that they found in the ocean. Um, and we are currently working on a, on a collection that I can't really share about right now, but it is also made out of 100% recycled woven materials. Um, and we've spent... I mean, during COVID, yes, we opened the store. We were also spending that time really trying to like hunt the globe from our homes um, and find materials that were sustainable that we could use. Because one of the biggest challenges in making products sustainable is a durability because a lot of sustainable materials are not durable. You wouldn't want to use them at all, unfortunately, but they're getting much better. And so we went out and we like handpicked the, the ones that we could use that would be okay in terms of like making a product that actually worked for people and lasted. Um, and so we're using those. And then we're also, we're also putting efforts into developing new materials with manufacturers, um, which is a bigger, longer term project. Um, but it's really, really important to us. So you'll see everything that we drop from here on out will be in one way or another um, conscious collection. So that's really exciting. Internally, we do a ton of things right now. We're actually doing a clothing drive um at the store so if you're around we are taking women's professional work wear um and donating that as well as donating products bags that we have um to women entering the workforce as well so they have something nice they can wear to work to interviews um and just feel good about themselves and ready to go i love that so we're going to wrap up with the same question I ask everyone at the end. And because there's three of you, I'm going to have you each give me one. So three tips, one from each of you that a female founder can take away from this conversation, an actionable step that they can put into practice after hearing our talk today. Mm. Who wants to start? Know your long-term goal mm. both for the business and also for yourself personally, right? Like professionally and personally know and understand, like know what your North star is and use that as a filter to make decisions for the business and your life, right? I think being a, being a female founder is tough in many ways, but if you know what you ultimately want to get out of that in your life, whether it's your, you know, your family life, your personal life, like, you know, your mental health, all of that. And then you also know how that pairs against the business you're able to prioritize and make decisions and build a culture, right? And also fundraise from investors that also see the world that way or appreciate that, but know, like really know what the long-term goal is and what your definition of success is. 
and don't let external factors, specifically investors, convince you otherwise. Like hold to that and do what do what you know is right for you. Love that. I can go next. Um, I think it's really important that people find their tribe of who they can go to for advice or resources for, you know, hey, I'm looking to hire this person or help or just like gut check. Does this feel right? You know, other founders, um, I don't want to say they have to be other women founders, but obviously that has its own set of challenges or or, or nuances too. But just a, a group of people, not all founders are the same. You know, there's certain people who will take certain types of money and think a certain way or grow at all costs. And like, we typically are not super friendly with those types of founders because we're just inherently, you know, wired differently. So I think that finding people who think like you, who you can really depend on as a good gut check is really helpful throughout the years so that you can compare notes and help each other. So network and find those people. Yeah, I'm going to actually piggyback off that because I was going to say something similar, but I think also just finding your tribe at work, you know, like we're, we're not solo founders at this point in our lives. I don't think that I ever will be. Um, I always wanted to start my own business, but I knew that I was going to need people that help to help me because it's like, you guys know your parents, but like it takes a village and it's the same thing with a business. And it's really, really important to have good people around you so that when you are going through those times, whether it be like massive growth really fast or crisis mode, tiny tote situation, um, mini tote rather that you have people that can kind of rally around you or the issue and you guys will get through it and, um, you know, see another day. So the actual people that you work with, I think are really, really important, important too. Absolutely. <laughs> Melissa Mash, Deepa Gandhi and Jesse Dover co-founders of Dagny Dover. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and your knowledge. I could talk to you guys all day. I know that with certainty. I, I have so many questions. I hope you'll come back or I hope you'll join me on Instagram Live for more conversation because you guys are a wealth of knowledge. I'm so proud of you for the success that you have seen so far and I can't wait to see where this goes. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. There were so many takeaways from today's conversation. I hope that you have a pen and paper ready, and I hope that you're going to click the link in the show notes so that you can sign up for my newsletter and receive all of today's takeaways sent straight to your inbox and so much more. But for now, here are my five takeaways from today's conversation with the co-founders of Dagny Dover. Number one, customer research is key when you're creating a product. Survey conduct focus groups, observations of how people use your category of product. These are all key elements when you are developing and designing a product to meet a consumer need. Number two, you will get attached to everything that you make. And sometimes it's really hard to drop it. But if it's not working and people don't like it, you have to learn when to let go. Number three, test your concepts. Launch a pre-sale to test if you have a viable product. Do a pop-up shop to see if people want to come into a brick and mortar to buy your product. There are so many different ways that you can test to make sure that you have the concept down pat before you scale. Number four, make sure that things are right before you raise a ton of capital and before you scale. Build the foundation, build the brand, build the loyal customer base. And then if you do that right, you will for sure grow. That is what happened in this situation. And number five, 
leverage word of mouth, build community, and build the foundation. These are basic principles that founders need to have before they launch. Don't rush to put up ads if there's no foundation. There has to be a history so that when you do put up ads, your ads actually work. Thank you so much to the ladies of Dagny Dover, Melissa, Jesse, and Deepa for being here and for sharing your story with all of us. And thank you to everyone who tuned in and tuned in and listened today. Dagny Dover so graciously has offered a 20% discount for Dear Found Her listeners. You can check the show notes for that discount and check out their website for all of their amazing products. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I hope that you'll tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for another episode of Dear Found Her. <laughs>